Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Rupert Watson. Today I'm joined by my colleague, Ye Ying Dong, to discuss the rise of China. As the Chinese economy enters into a new phase of development, we'll assess the opportunities and challenges of this transition and explore what this means for global investors and capital markets. Ye Ying, thanks very much for joining me today. And perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your role at Mercer. Good morning, Rupert, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I joined Mercer in 2019 as a market strategist to lead global macroeconomic research and dynamic asset allocation strategies for the Asia-Pacific region. Prior to Mercer, I worked in the pension fund industry as an investment strategist and economist. I specialize in covering economic policy and cross-asset research with a focus on China. So when I started as a fund manager over 20 years ago, China was a small part of the global economy. Now it's truly massive and it totally dominates whole sectors. What does China want and what stands out for you in terms of China's development? Now, they're excellent uh, questions and I might take uh, the second uh, question first because I think that's a, uh, a bit easier. I think what stands out in China's development over the past few decades has really been the speed of China's economic expansion. In the 43 years since China initially pursued reform and opening up, the size of the Chinese economy has grown by 35-fold. Per capita income rose from a very low base of less than a few hundred USD to around 10,000 US dollars by the end of 2019. And during this process, almost 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty and standards of living have proved significantly. China's aggregate GDP is currently around 18 trillion US dollars and is currently number two in the world. In terms of the Chinese economy, it is now home to the world's largest middle class. It's the largest market for automobiles, the largest luxury goods products market. China represents half of the world's demand for copper and iron, and iron ore. And so the size of the Chinese market is truly astounding. And this market is still growing, which is important economically, as China is now the largest trading partner for over 128 countries in the world. And in terms of your first question, which is what China wants to achieve, I believe the answer is actually very simple. What China wants to achieve is to be strong so that it can never be humiliated again. China simply wants to be respected on the world stage and to be treated as an equal. And I would encourage anyone who wants to study China and to deeply understand China's national policies and foreign policy should study the century of humiliation, as this period shows the pain the Chinese people endured from foreign intervention and having a weak government. Now, this is the environment that led to the rise of the Chinese Communist Party and for the Chinese people to rally behind the Chinese Communist Party to achieve China's national rejuvenation. 
Well, thanks. I mean, some of those stats you you mentioned are truly amazing. Uh, I've been to Hong Kong a few times, but only been to the mainland once. And when I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago, I was talking to someone uh, who was a regular. Uh, and as we were standing in these enormous buildings and very modern and very flash, uh, the chap I was talking to told me that uh, when he first came, uh, he was standing on agricultural land and could see people people farming. So the development, the speed of development has been truly, truly astonishing. Um, looking forward, China has, as you say, big plans to be at the forefront of a number of leading technologies. Perhaps you could take us through some of those plans. Certainly. And China's future economic strategy uh, in order to become more industrialized and to develop advanced manufacturing has really been driven by the challenges from its previous model of development, which was largely trade and investment led. So back in 2010, after the global financial crisis, policymakers in China were worried that marginal returns on investment were declining. At the same time, China's labor cost was rising, and this lowered the country's competitive advantage. Another challenge that policymakers need to deal with in China is that China's population will experience a significant aging profile in the next 20 to 30 years, which means that growth in the labor supply cannot be a reliable source of growth. And so the concern of being stuck in a middle income trap has really led policymakers to devise a strategy that can address these challenges. And so China simply had to move up the value chain in order to become more innovative and to boost productivity. Now, these considerations gave rise to the Made in China 2025 blueprint that looked to improve China's advanced manufacturing across 10 sectors that range from semiconductors, artificial intelligence. And so China will seek to expand research and development, national infrastructure, and to also foster consumption. And this has led to a dual circulation framework for growth. Now, outside of consumption, the external sector will also be a key driver for China's future development. China's blueprint in this space has been the Belt and Road Initiative, which is aimed at boosting cross-border trade and investment. Uh, you're talking about uh, uh, climate change, and uh, and then I suppose that brings us on to electric vehicles. Um, I'm quite excited by electric vehicles. I'm not really a car person, um, and uh, if you see some of my older cars that I had in the years gone by, uh, you would see why. Um, but I went electric about a year ago, and I absolutely love uh, my electric car. Uh, in terms of climate change, China has big plans there. Um, of course, China is the world's largest emitter, um, but uh, is making great strides or at least talking a good game. Um, what have they announced in relation to uh, the fight against climate change? So that's a really uh, good, good question. I think climate change is certainly uh, an issue that every country in the world needs to rally behind, as at the end of the day, if we don't have a a functioning planet, then economic growth uh, is meaningless. Last year, we learned of China's ambition to become carbon neutral by 2060. Now, this, of course, 
this will involve a significant amount to address China's current energy mix. And so part of the solution towards energy efficiency lies in making traditional sources of electric generation more efficient. And so China aims to achieve peak emissions by 2030 through building new and more efficient coal plants and to also retire old fleets. And at the same time, China will push for more renewable energy generation. And I believe examples such as uh, electric cars will certainly uh, be an avenue that, uh, that consumers can get access to. But in terms of power generation, nuclear, I do believe, will be a feasible option as it is scalable and has large capacity. And only this year, China recently launched a third generation nuclear power plant in Fujian province. Okay, well, so and so many of the plans you talked about, or, or, or the Chinese um, uh, uh, Made in China 2025 plan, uh, are, are on things that the US is also focusing on and Europe as well, and other uh, economies. Uh, and the overlap in what they're in the what countries are trying to do uh, seem like a recipe for creating a recipe for tension. How do you think these tensions will be managed, and how do you think things will pan out? In terms of tension, I believe that you know with China's economy still growing and catching up towards uh, advanced economies, uh, China is certainly keen to expand its manufacturing and technological capacity. And we have seen uh, China uh, demonstrate leadership in certain areas, such as 5G. And of course, that's become a source of tension for the United States as it threatens uh, US leadership. In terms of how the environment will evolve, I do not believe the world has seen such a great shift in geopolitical and economic power in recent memory. But I remain optimistic that the world will avoid war as war results in no winners. Now, specifically relating to China and United States, both of these countries are in a strategic competition over the technologies of the future, such as 5G, artificial intelligence, semiconductors, and automation. Now, these technologies will be important for China to gain global leadership. And equally, they will be important for United States in order to retain global leadership. And so even in this rising uh, environment of competition, I do not believe in a complete uh, separation. And on the topic of climate, we saw this week that in fact, China and United States will work together on climate change. But one area where they probably won't be working together is on the issue of, of, of Taiwan. Um, do you think over the next, shall we say, 10 years, 20 years, um, there's likely to be some major uh, event in, in relation to Taiwan. Uh, and what are the, are the implications more generally of China's growing military might? And that's another, that's an easy question for you there. Yes, it's a very easy uh, question. I think I might try to answer uh, the second question first before then to Taiwan. But 
I view 2021 as being a historical year for China, as the country will move from finishing the first centenary goal and moving towards the second centenary goal. And so by 2025, China aims to achieve basic modernization and a doubling of per capita income. The growth of China's military is a natural part of this strategy, as having the ability to protect trading and investment interests across both land and sea will be important. And so China's rise over the past 40 years has been peaceful, and I believe this will continue. Now, on the issue of Taiwan, Taiwan is an unalienable part of China. And I believe that China will do whatever it takes to defend its sovereignty. Now, China firmly opposes foreign interference in its internal affairs and will take necessary actions to protect her interests. But I do not believe that military conflict uh, is the way forward because we have seen through history that war produces no winners. It only produces losers. And this will not be in the interest Sorry to interrupt. You say that China will do whatever it takes. Presumably, whatever it takes does include military action. Otherwise, that's not whatever it takes. So I do believe it comes down to an assessment of, of, of what one would gain by uh, pursuing uh, military action versus other uh, methods of resolving uh, disputes. And through history, we have seen that war creates no winners. And it will not be in the interest of United States, given its one China policy, to press China on Taiwan. And neither will China want to seek conflict with United States. So you think we will essentially carry on pretty much as we are uh, for, a, for a long time to come? That's right. And I think the world can coexist with two rising powers, one rising power and one established power. But what's also very interesting here is that the rivalry between United States and China has put more pressure on how other countries and regions balance their relationship between United States and China. Now, in terms of how this develops, it's difficult to say, but it will not be a comfortable journey. But in the end, I do believe that interests will ultimately prevail over values. As in the okay. famous words of Winston Churchill, we have no lasting friends, no lasting enemies, only lasting interests. Oh, very good. I like a bit of Winston Churchill. Um, now, we've spoken mostly about structural issues, and I'd like to briefly ask you what's going on now. Uh, in particular, in the US and, and Europe and some other countries, um, we're, we're, we're fairly close, or we've just started what I think will be a fairly significant economic boom as economies reopen and consumers go shopping again. Um, in China, the economy is at a different stage, um, having recovered that bit earlier. And perhaps you could uh, let, let us uh, share with us what you think is going to happen uh, over the next few quarters. So in relation to China's economic recovery, the fight against COVID-19 is not yet over. 
And looking at the first quarter of China's economic growth, we've seen that growth actually slowed due to rising COVID cases. And this also resulted in an increase in the unemployment rate. But going forward, I do believe the recovery will be supported by rising consumption, as you mentioned, and also the recent stimulus from the US government is going to be very positive for global trade growth. And so China's manufacturing sector is in a very strong position to take advantage of the recent US stimulus. And domestic consumption is also rising gradually as well as the unemployment uh, market continues to recover. Now, in terms of policy, and this is where I find uh, the greatest amount of divergence between China and other advanced economies, was that during the initial periods of the pandemic, the PBOC was very quick to respond by lowering interest rates. But at the same time, as the recovery progressed, the PBOC started to normalize policy. And so by the end of 2020, interest rates in China returned to their pre-crisis levels. And at the same time, fiscal policy in China was also more selective and targeted, which ultimately focused on driving investment growth as opposed to income replacement. And so the recovery in China is taking on a very different form compared to the recoveries in the United States and Europe. Now, for this year, I do believe that there could be a risk if policy tightening is going to be expanded across the economy, especially when the macro environment is strong. However, I do believe that after the National People's Congress in March, the government is still looking to achieve sustainable growth in credit. And they're targeting nominal GDP of around 12% expansion, which still shows very strong growth for the economy. And what does this mean for Chinese asset prices? Now, in terms of Chinese asset prices, uh, the first quarter of this year has been uh, a very painful one for both uh, equities and bonds. But looking at China's financial market in the long run, I do believe that this is a key area that policymakers will continue to make progress in terms of reform and liberalization. And the reason is that China's financial market is still developing and Chinese corporates need to have better avenues to raise finance, such as through debt and equity, and having proper functioning debt and equity markets. Now, across the equity market, I am quite positive in the long run, as the size of the market is small relative to the size of the economy. Now, if we think about the Chinese Asia market, total market cap is around 15 trillion. The size of China's economy is 18 trillion. If we look at the market cap of the United States, the equity market in the US is around 36 trillion versus the size of the economy, which is around 21 trillion. So there's a lot of growth potential for Chinese equities. Now, in terms of the short term, I think anything can happen in the short term, but I actually do see upside growth for this year as a lot of negative news on policy, tightening, and antitrust issues have been priced into the market. And the macro environment is still going to be very positive for earnings. Now, Rupert, I'll be keen to hear your views on what you think regarding the outlook for global equities 
And would you look to make an allocation, a tactical one, to Chinese equities? Uh, in terms of a tactical one to Chinese equities, I'll be speaking to you. Um, but for what for what it's worth, I agree with your view that uh, over the over the long run, uh, Chinese equities will uh, or should do should do pretty well. In terms of the next few months or next few quarters, um, I think global equities will also perform quite well. Um, although the further out I look, and as we get into next year and certainly in the year after, I think the outlook, particularly for US equities, gets slightly worse. In terms of this year, the global economy is likely to, uh, is likely to be very strong which should mean corporate earnings this year and into next year will be very strong. And central banks are likely to stay on hold and remain pretty dovish. And that's a pretty favorable backdrop um, for, for, for global equity markets. But I am beginning to get worried about the valuation side of things and also because of signs of froth. In terms of valuations, the CAPE measure, um, the uh, K-Shiller uh, measure uh, of, of earnings is at very high levels. Uh, and while equities are still favorably, are still relatively attractive or at least neutral relative to bonds, uh, that would change if bond yields were, if bond yields were to rise. Uh, and therefore, as we move into next year, I think there is a risk that we will see higher bond yields, particularly if, and it's an if, if we were to see persistently higher inflation, I think that would create a material risk uh, to US equities, uh, although I think in that environment, non-US equities, including Chinese equities, uh, would outperform. So thank you very much, Ye Ying, for that. That was very, uh, very interesting. Um, of course, the Chinese China's development over the last 40 years has been truly extraordinary. Chinese economy is uh, is catching up with the US and is likely to become the world's largest economy uh, at some point over over the next decade or so. And that has huge implications, not just for the global economy uh, and financial markets, um, but around all the tricky uh, geopolitical issues as well. Uh, and so we'll be touching base with Ye Ying at some point again. As I said at the beginning, when I started work, um, China, uh, we didn't spend too much time on. Um, now, uh, it's uh, a big part of what we focus on. Uh, I did mention it's my, my birthday coming up. Uh, I will be 50, which is quite exciting for me at least. Um, uh, probably kick it off with a minute's silence. Um, but uh, thanks once again. And next month, I'll be joined by Deb Clark, our Global Research Chair at Mercer, and Sarika Gohl, uh, who works in our Investment Manager Research Team, who focuses on diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, please join us to hear why it is important, how we incorporate it into our assessments of asset managers, and how each of us as individuals can make a difference. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review. And if you'd like to discuss this topic or any others, please contact us at ctci at mercer.com. That is ctci at mercer.com. Thanks again. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal, tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Please refer to Mercer's full legal disclaimer in the episode description.